And uh, coming up next, we have Stone's Throw on Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Please stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, drop the shadows out of sight. Oh, today I had all this, uh, <laughs> all this stuff about violence and war and all that blood under the bridge. And, oh, it just weighed me down when I left home walking down the street. And then I turned the corner and there was the Zen Center and the Buddhist Temple and... All those monks in their mustard yellow robes and the Thai cultural center and oh, the roses, the flowers those guys plant. I tell you, I think they're on to something. Yes, I have a, a sign. I'm going to have it done in calligraphy. It says, be with me, beauty, for the fire is dying. It's just corny enough for my old age. I just love that. You know, if you look around, there's always something, something beautiful. Before I get into the bloody stuff, let me read just one poem, maybe two. This one is called Yes to the Earth. Yes to the Earth. It's from an Italian poet um, uh, who had a very tragic history. And uh, she was born 1876, died 1960. And she had the usual tragedy for a, a woman. And I won't tell you all about that because that part said, I'll, what I'll do is I'll read you her poem, which says, Yes to the Earth. So shines the earth in certain mornings, light with its roses and cypresses, or with its grain and its olives. So suddenly does it shine on the soul and isolates it and makes it forget everything. Even if an instant earlier the soul was suffering to the quick or mediating bitter, so shines the earth in certain morning's light and in its silence reveals itself a marvelous lump spinning from the skies and beautiful in its tragic solitude. So laughs that the soul, although not asks, answers, yes, yes to the earth, to the indifferent earth, yes. Even if, in an instant, the skies and the roses and the cypresses should turn dark, or the labor of living be made more burdensome and breathing yet more heroic, Yes, 
the subjugated soul answers the earth. So does it shine in certain mornings light beautiful over all things and human hope. That's an English translation from the Italian, which I'm sure is far more musical. It's translated by Muriel Kittel, K-I-T-T-E-L, and the poet's name is Sibylla Alermo, A-L-E-R-M-O. And she was, yes, uh, she was a hero. Never mind, I will save her life history for another day. Uh, there's one more poem that I wanted to read you, but I'll save it. I'll save it for tomorrow because I have so much. I hope that you had a chance to watch Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. I know that many television programs uh, are beneath beneath the... Uh, Beneath the radar for KPFA listeners, but check out Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It was painfully politically correct, but what the hell, you know? It's a remarkable production. The guy who played Sitting Bull was uh, off the charts. That's pretty hard, you know, <laughs> pretty hard to make him look, um, what is that, uh, profound at the same time, remarkably human, just uh, this ordinary guy. Um, anyway, uh, there were U.S. military men talking like history teachers. That I don't know if that goes down, but I kept thinking, well, if the high school students are watching this, it makes sense. The writers took the trouble to um, spell it out. Um, the military men and the uh, white boys, they, uh, they uh, point out to... Uh, Red Cloud and the others, that indigenous peoples on this continent had been at war with each other since forever, since certainly before the Europeans came. The so-called white man was just the intruder with the biggest war machine, let's put it that way. There were just too many of them. Uh, it's always nice to be reminded <laughs> that everyone, everywhere, <laughs> is always to blame for man's inhumanity to man <laughs> and man's inhumanity to woman, yes. Seems to be a permanent world disorder. That's my favorite line, yes. Uh, um, the battle for men's minds is so often fought on the field of women's bodies. Yes, that's our uh, script. We have these periods of calm. I was raised in one, I think, um, the 50s, relatively calm. You can't call that peace. Peace is an active condition. But there is this calm between the storms. Carl Jung says that the violence comes in these waves, sort of paranoid waves of aggression. Something to do with our primate uh, psychology. In the past, of course, we could recover individually and uh uh, nations, too, could recover within, say, one generation. Nowadays, the damage is going deeper. It's uh, biocide. Um, we have these uh, problems that don't go away. Environmental degradation, you know, um, probably much worse than the actual body count. Um, 
in combat. We got a species suicide going here. Biological meltdowns and, you know, symptoms like birth defects. Uh, those are just, uh, just a small part of it. Civilization itself seems to be melting in some spots in what they call failed states. Places where actual warfare is welcomed. You know, a young man can get regular meals and gun and, you know, uh, uh, a system. <laughs> you know, the, what is it? The crimescape, uh, and war seem to be blurring more and more. I, I can't quite get them straight anymore. You remember back in the old days when they used to have regular wars and you declared war and there were surrenders and people handed over their swords? Anyway, all that formal stuff, that's, that's, that's over with. That's, um, that's the past. But, you know, in this richest of nations, uh, we do still have some formal military that it has a, an appeal for the disenfranchised. You know, it's a regular job in the violence industry. So when you have a culture of violence, there's the criminal class and then there's the legitimate uh, killers. Those are the military. Uh, <laughs> last night I was watching the Sopranos, I, I checked it out again, I haven't seen it for a while, and I noticed that The Sopranos is coming to an end. Most um, popular series on HBO ever, and uh, <laughs> I find it emblematic of everything that's going down. Not so much as my absolute favorite Rome, but the series Rome only had 22 episodes, and the Sopranos has been running for eight years, 86 shows when it ends on June the 10th. Uh, <laughs> let me read you a smidgen of David Remnick in the New Yorker. Uh, the cover of the June 4th New Yorker shows Tony Soprano exiting his shrink's office for the last time. Tones, various tones of brown. David Remnick writes, in the pilot episode of The Sopranos, uh, which Home Box Office first aired on January the 10th, 1999, a thickening son of Essex County, New Jersey, reluctantly visits Jennifer Melfi, a psychiatrist, uh, at her office in Montclair. His name is Anthony Soprano, and he has been depressed. <laughs> yes, just like all of us, right. Uh, thickening, well, I don't know. I, I thought about it. Uh, several people told me what a sex symbol he was, and uh, I don't quite get that. Uh, but it could be he's what we used to call a big lug. Some people think he's very paternal. Uh, I think he's pretty scary. Anyway, uh, David Remnick says, Tony lives in a French provincial McMansion in North Caldwell with his wife Carmela and their children Meadow and A.J., he works as a, quote, waste management consultant, unquote. <laughs> That's his job, yes. He all too modestly informs his doctor, yes, that he's in waste management. 
That's an interesting way of putting it, yes. Waste, the wasteland. In fact, um, Tony's interests extend to the docks, to no-show construction jobs, to paving and joint-fitting unions, um, executive card games. Let's see, there's a long list of his... Um, uh, <laughs> his cons. He has a lot of protection rackets, uh, HUD scams, truck hijacking, yes. Consumer goods fell off the back of a truck type, yes. Uh-huh. The ones we pick up at the flea markets today. Oh, and there's a strip club in Lodi, place called the Bada Bing. Fabulous, uh, emblematic again of our life and times, the girls there, the pole dancers, are kind of tapestry, kind of background for the violence in the foreground. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Tony Soprano, as everyone in North Jersey and beyond has come to know, is the head of the DeMeo crime family. And he's been suffering from panic attacks. Business is uneven. His associates and his children lack focus. His uncle resents his authority. His wife resents his late-night romps with yet another goomba. And his mother, the Medea of Bloomfield Avenue, never loved him. And she may yet give the signal to have him whacked. The pressure is really something. <laughs> He tells Dr. Melfi uh, that uh, it felt like ginger ale in his skull, uh, and he collapsed while grilling pork sausages on the barbecue. Yeah, there's a lot of barbecuing and grilling going on in this show. Uh, the Medea character, Tony's mother, that's the, the late, great actress Nancy Marchand. First scene, I remember her in a production of Marty on Playhouse 90. Oh, 100 years ago. And then she was on a show with um, Ed Asner. She played, um, actually, the character based on Catherine Graham. Fascinating, yes. Uh, she runs uh, the Washington Post, something like that. Uh, that character was very grand. But the Medea character, the, the mother in The Sopranos, is absolutely hilarious. Uh the actress herself was ill, dying at the time, and she she's pretty grim, but um, she gives a frightening performance of maternal malevolence, absolutely chilling. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, it all goes back to the mother, you know. <laughs> the uncle, yes, he was the original head of the family, and Tony's taken over from him. I love that character because he was a template for the uh, attitude of the many, some of the males in the show, attitude towards women. Uh, his name was Junior, believe it or not. And uh, Junior is uh, a conscientious lover. And he, uh, I believe I can say on, on radio, I can say he uh, performs oral sex on his blonde partner. She's a mellow character, but she makes the incredibly stupid error of uh, telling 
she lets it out that uh, Junior is willing to um, perform uh, acts which uh, Junior would see as subservient or serving the female. And when he finds out that she's been shooting off her mouth, he beats her silly. And uh, I found that very interesting. That was as close as they got to the bone when it comes to the sexual uh, games. Actually, um, I think they gave up. They tried everything. But uh, it was not a study in sex education. That's one thing. The Sopranos was not. Um, Tony is basically a modern modern man, CEO, um, problems, yes, an executive type, <laughs> middle class America. I think of all the guys in all the scandals today, that's Tony Soprano. They're on the TV every night. Here's Tony's talking to his psychiatrist, he says, the morning of the day I got sick, I've been thinking, it's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came in too late for that, I know. But lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. His psychiatrist, Jennifer Melfi, answers. She says to him, Many Americans, I think, feel that way. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Even the crime racket. No romance there anymore. No vroom vroom. Tony answers. He says, I think about my father. He never reached the heights like me. But in a lot of ways, he had it better. He had his people. They had their standards. They had pride. Today, what do we got? <laughs> And so began Tony Soprano's quest for a renewed sense of family, heritage, coherent truths, mental health, and a prime cut of the Esplanade construction projects. Now, uh, David Remnick goes on to, the editor of The New Yorker goes on, to say that this is the richest achievement in the history of television. I, I guess maybe that's his point of view. It ends June 10th. After 86 episodes, uh, it's not my absolute favorite, and I did lose track of it from time to time. After all, eight years is a mighty long time. As uh, Remnick says, it's been with us longer than the Bush administration, and nothing seems more interminable than that. Okay. Uh, Tony's played by James Gandolfini was now, I think, uh, a permanent star. My God, 86 episodes, 86 hours. If you compare that with the Godfather films, the three Godfather father films total, I guess, I'm guessing about seven hours total. That's seven hours as uh, opposed to 86 episodes, 86 hours. Talk about imprinting. Um, anyway, uh, Remnick goes on to point out that in the beginning, Tony had a little more hair and some uh, lightness to his steps, like like uh, James Gleason, right? He had not yet achieved the menacing rhino plod that came with time, anxiety, and 
15,000 buttered uh, bialis. <laughs> we had yet to glimpse his rages. Uh, in the beginning of the show, yeah, his accent was less mobbed up, almost refined. Sounded more Summock than Newark. Uh, actually, I have heard uh, on oh, interview shows, I've heard the actor James Gandolfini say in recent years that the show is too violent. <laughs> he finally came to that conclusion. Maybe... What is it we used to say? Film argues in favor of the behavior it shows. Never mind what the results are. I have argued, I think, that The Sopranos doesn't use gratuitous violence. It's not the kind of uh, sickening, sadomasochistic violence that we see in so many films. It's more what I would call grounded. It's like butcher shop violence. Uh, some of it is wildly, grotesquely funny. It's very hard to get rid of human bodies, you know, the sort of thing. Uh, and uh, there's tremendous style in this show. Uh, I'm always surprised at the, um, uh, the skill, the skill of the performers and the directors, editors, and so forth. Uh, the stuff is um, shocking, of course, but uh, sometimes uh, so, so... <laughs> So wildly absurd and and just ordinary, you know. It reminds me more of um, housekeeping, yes, uh, women's work. Killing people is such a sloppy business. Um, anyway, uh, Remnick says that the basic ideas were in place from the start uh, to an astonishing degree. The creator, David Chase never had the luxury of a novelist's control of the length and narrative destiny, but uh, he has rarely faltered. The show evolved in the manner of a sprawling social novel of the 19th century, constantly sprouting new plot lines and developing recurring jokes and images and characters. Footnote here, I put uh, a list of Tony uh, Soprano's uh, malaprop-isms in my notebook now here, I've forgotten it. It's the sort of thing that, in, when he means to say that something um, entails a great deal of uh, trouble, he would say entrails. But it isn't just the ordinary malapropisms. <laughs> I, I remember what he did with Nostradamus, but uh, they have this wonderful uh, uh, cockeyed malaprop expressions. Uh, he wishes to sound educated. And he tries to be what I would call new agey. Even the stuff about his therapy, he tries to talk uh, like a new age type. Um, <laughs> uh, David Remnick says that uh, Charles Dickens would have seen a kinsman in the creator of this show, David Chase. Uh, the characters, let's see, Paulie Walnuts, uh, Galtieri, and... Uh, he actually says there are fewer dull patches in The Sopranos than there are in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, with all due respect. Uh, well, I don't know. I think of the Victorian novel as kind of like a long vine and then a grape. It hooks you in and you just keep reading, you know, and then comes another grape and then 
you know, to go trailing along the Sopranos. He's 21st century boy. The grapes come in clusters. I tell you, this show is a, um, a shock a minute. Uh, Remnick goes on to say that unlike John Updike's Rabbit series or the Philip Roth novels of the past decade, The Sopranos teams with the mindless commerce and consumption of modern America. Ah, the shopping lists. Yes, I love the women. They're always having lunch at the plaza. (laughs) Yes. Drama and comedy are rooted in the particulars of life as it is lived. From the Pulaski Skyway to Bergen Avenue. Oh, I see why the New York, uh, the New Yorker put it on the cover. It's New York, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's their town. Uh, but the larger events of the world are never completely sealed from view. Uh, and you remember once, oh golly, there was a scene, the women were arguing about, uh, Hillary's role in the, um, Monica scandal. Uh, oh, no, I remember eventually when, um, Hillary becomes, uh, an elected official. They point out that um, she took the broken eggs and made an omelet. And uh, Tony Soprano's wife says to her her uh, friends, ladies who lunch, you know, she said, well, she's an example to all of us, right? And she winks at the women at the table. Mm, mafia wives, yes, indeed. Um, anyway, in... Sopranos, they always have televisions playing in the background, so you know the current event scene, uh, the local news in the offices and in the hospital rooms, and of course, 9-11 background, they had some hilarious stuff around that. Uh, <laughs> yes, they still do. Uh, they have these little games they play with the FBI. They have, in Tony's living room, they have something they call the Hitler Channel. I guess that's the History Channel. A world politics is kind of an undercurrent rumbling underneath ordinary nights in New Jersey. And world history echoes through these domestic catastrophes, you know, kind of like it does in our lives. Uh, <laughs> as Bobby Bacalieri put it, uh, with dire resignation in one scene, Quasimodo predicted all of this. Um, he mixes it up with uh, Nostradamus, too. Anyway, no matter no matter how funny or blatantly cartoonish some of the players are, uh, some of them, he says, are like animated Fellini figures, I would say Dick Tracy types. Uh, hmm. Maybe... Um, there are one or two, just one or two, that from my point of view are almost Damon Runyon-like. Uh, yes, a little bit of Damon Runyon, you know, the guy who uh, is responsible for guys and dolls. Uh, anyway, the mobsters and their families are a recognizable reflection of all of us, even if they're Dickensian a bit, yes. Uh, let's see, mobsters, yes, but also shadow communities of smug and equally troubled psychiatrists, yes. Um, Malfi, the woman, she, uh, the psychiatrist, she's an Italian and she has problems with the fact that this guy's a criminal. Her psychiatrist, played by Peter Bogdanovich, he's a real kick. 
My favorite is his scene in which he points out that sociopaths are very clever and that they use psychiatry or therapy to practice their skills and that in many ways um Malfi, Jennifer the psychiatrist, is enabling Tony Soprano, yes, to do what he does and to be better at it. <laughs> what a kick. Oh, I'm almost out of time and I haven't even dealt with the Sopranos. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, Remnick writes, is this a comedy that ends with a litany of the dead and the missing? <laughs> What are you going to do? That's their mantra in this show. What are you going to do? Last episode, June 10th. This has been Jennifer Stone back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light, light them up. Picture, drop the shadows out of the Join us for the 11th year of healing and liberation through the arts. Artists Against Rape features spoken word, music, and art from local voices speaking out against and healing from sexual violence. Thursday, June 7th at the Brava Theater, 2789 24th Street in San Francisco. Tickets are on a sliding scale from 5 to 50. No one turned away for lack of funds. This event benefits San Francisco Women Against Rape. For more info, call 415-861-2024 or visit www.sfwar.org for details. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA.